I'm Rebecca Cohen. And I'm Maya Garantz. And this is The Sauce, the culture and politics podcast where we drink cocktails and ruin the stuff you love. Listeners, I don't think you could get enough of us talking about Israel. (laughs) Apparently, they loved our Israel episode and want more. That's the message I'm receiving. And I think that there are just a few things that we want to, I don't know, clarify about what we're seeing in the ongoing culture. It's really hilarious to me that we kept trying to make an Israel episode for like months or even years, and we couldn't figure out how to do it. We were too afraid to do it. And then we finally did it. And now we're like, more Israel episodes. Well, uh, I'm not going to list all the really warm feedback, but people found it um, even-handed and useful and helpful and clarifying, for which we are unbelievably grateful. I mean, yeah. that's really... Oh, no, the that... feedback's been amazing. I think we actually should share some of the feedback. Uh, but you know what? Before we do that, look, we're going to catch you all up. Uh, if, listeners, you didn't happen to hear our previous episode about Israel and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, you really should, or I should say the Israeli-Hamas conflict, but not like the Palestinian people aren't involved, whether they like it or not. Oh, God. You should listen to that previous episode. We'll summarize it for you anyway. We're going to give you some updates, some new stuff we've learned about, been reading about, and then I think we want to talk a little bit more about what's going on in the discourse around it, because it's getting out of hand. Um, But before we get into all of that stuff. We got to do our check-in. Maya, how are you doing and what are you drinking? I am drinking this kind of, there's guava juice in my fridge and I added some limes and put a little tequila and it's the early afternoon. So I'm going to be like crashing during my daughter's violin class in a few hours. Yeah, It's going to be great. I'm doing great. My show is up It's a fucking beautiful show. I did a performance um, last Saturday where I did like a dance lecture. It was really like a live episode of The Sauce. Um, I danced the mad scene from Giselle. I did the mad scene from Ophelia. And it was sort of a discussion of performances of insanity by women in the Western performance tradition. It was great. Sounds amazing. I yeah, it was really fantastic. I wish I could have been there. I really, oh, I wish you could have been there too so much. <laughs> Other than that, I'm rocking. So how about you, Miss Lady Pants? How are you doing? What are you drinking? Well, I am doing very well in that I just came home from my first ever acupuncture session. Oh, yeah. acupuncture is the best. Yeah, I've I've been wanting to do it for literally years. Uh, and I have so many complaints. Like I went in, you know, and the first thing she, you get your like little interview and the practitioner was asking me about what my issues are. And, you know, so she could give me my sort of Chinese medicine diagnosis and then plan of treatment. And, um, I was realizing like, should I, should I say one thing or should I say like the 30 things? <laughs> so it's like, yeah, well, the 30, the 30. So I, I did kind of give her the rundown. And and she said the issue is with my liver. She said my liver is depleted and that um, that was depleting my chi, um, which checks out. I, that sounds absolutely legit to me. And um, so pr- I probably shouldn't be drinking, I guess, if the liver is the central issue. But, uh, 
you know, there's quality of life things going on too. You gotta, you gotta have a drink now and then. So I am drinking a sex on the beach. Oh, she rolled her eyes. Maya just rolled her eyes like a gif. Like you couldn't ask for a more perfect eye roll. (laughs) Let me explain a little bit. The reason I chose this is because this is what I drank. Probably the first time I ever really had a drink besides like a sip of wine or Manischewitz at a, you know, family dinner. It was what I drank when I was 14 years old in Israel. My parents sent me on a trip, you know, where they take 60 American teenagers and tour them around Israel. And I got caught drinking, which we were not allowed to do. Drinking age was 18, I guess, technically. But uh, they had no problem serving me at the bars and... Some Somebody must have ratted us out, and they sent a letter home to my parents saying that I had been caught violating the rules and that if it were to happen again, they would send me home on my parents' expense. Oh, my God. Yeah. Was it the last time you drank during that trip? Probably not. Yeah. No, it could I not I mean, happen. I just want to say a sex on the beach is a total Israeli drink. Israel was so late to a cocktail. I remember once being in a Tel Aviv bar and actually going behind the bar to make my own drink because they have all the stuff so that it looks like a bar, but they don't fucking know how to make a cocktail. And it was only when I was last in Israel that Israel's gotten like the the whole fancy thing that's happened to every city in the world yeah the craft cocktails finally they finally got there enough kids had finally spent two years in new york or whatever but i mean they couldn't even make a like basic basic like martini like they don't they don't they did not know how so like how to make the sex on the beach (laughs) because the sex on the beach is just like juice and booze do you know what i mean no it literally is just it's like the kind of thing israelis drink yeah it was also the only probably the only cocktail i like knew the name of at the time i was like this is a thing i've heard of so that's what i ordered and you know it's pink and very easy to drink absolutely Okay, let's just briefly cover listener feedback. There's one piece of feedback I do want to share. Okay. Because it comes from an actual real live peace and conflict studies professor, which was really uh, interesting. She says, I totally agree with Iran, Russia, and don't overlook what's happening in Guatemala, which is linked to those same larger geopolitics that have long played out in Central America, too. So that is really interesting, and I reached out to see if maybe she'll come on and talk about those things. That would be rad. Yeah. So this is somebody who has done this kind of work uh, for a long time in a very boots-on-the-ground way um, and is seeing the way that these geopolitical messes and manipulations leading to outrageous violence have played out for a really long time. You know what? I know we're great. You know we're great. All of our episodes are great. But sometimes uh, it's nice to hear it from other people. Oh, it's true. (laughs) Our, you know, longtime listener and also previous guest, Marcus Anderson, said that um, I knew that as a team you would bring a much needed level of nuance, context, and compassion to the conversation. Thank you, Marcus. Yes, thank you. Thank you to everyone who responded in these ways, telling us that they got something out of it. That was our hope. Absolutely. I also want to just finally especially thank our patrons. 
you are the reason that we've been going for as long as we have doing what we do so that we can do an episode like the last one that seems to be really useful to people. So thank you, thank you, patrons. And you can join them at patreon.com slash podcast to support this show. And we greatly, greatly appreciate it. I think we should start, as I said at the top, by kind of summarizing briefly the stuff we talked about in the previous episode. As a reminder for anyone who listened and also to catch up those who didn't listen, though you should probably go back and listen because, you know, everything we say is gold. (laughs) Always. Always. Last time we talked about Israel, we um, framed it by uh, addressing some of the common annoying things we were hearing people say about this conflict. And um, the three misconceptions or wrong things that we addressed were, number one, this is all Israel's fault. Basically, Israel brought this on themselves. Um, The second one being, uh, this is just anti-Semitism. Hamas attacked Israelis because they're Jewish. And then the third one being, uh, this is an ancient ethnic feud that is basically unresolvable. It's so complex, these people simply cannot live together, never have, never will. And we went into a lot about the sort of geopolitical context to try to illustrate how these points of view were missing the big picture. I mean, I think the first main point was that the uh, attacks on October 7th that were really grim and violent, um, were not an organic uprising of an oppressed people, although we acknowledge that they have every reason to be organically uprising due to their oppression. Um, The October 7th attacks were by Hamas, which is a fundamentalist, oppressive organization that has its own agenda. And these attacks were funded and assisted by Iran, Russia, possibly China, and part of a larger geopolitical anti-West agenda in response to what they see as Israel's increasing partnerships in the region, specifically with Saudi Arabia. Well said. So so Hamas has its own agenda, which is power uh, and to please its funders. Uh, And no part of that agenda is really the liberation of the Palestinian people. And though their stated purpose is anti-Semitism, it would be incredibly oversimplistic to suggest that that was their main motivator. And we also talked about the political situation within Israel and the ways in which right-wing extremists fundamentalists have gained more and more influence and power and basically captured the Israeli government, uh, which is not a situation unique to Israel. We've seen this happening in lots of places, including the United States. Um, And so if you're trying to um, place blame on one side or the other of this specific conflict, you're kind of missing the big picture. Yes. (laughs) I mean, for sure. And that this rise of the extremist right wing is only causing more problems. It's been happening pretty much exactly as long as it's been happening in the US, which is since the 80s, with a particular 
intensity over the past two decades. And we are seeing the results in terms of intelligence failure. And I think I'm going to argue in terms of the way that the military is currently responding. Uh, it's very similar to the United States in terms of how right-wing extremists in Israel are reacting to the situation militarily. So speaking of that, I wanted to get into some updates on that stuff we talked about last time, some ways in which we've continued to see that play out or learned more about it. And um, one of the things that I read recently was brought to my attention by our mutual friend, Guy Branham, friend of the show, guest of the show. Um, It was an article from like 10 years ago by this guy named Bezalel Smotrich, who is, I guess, Israel's finance minister. And he's a super right-wing fundamentalist guy, a settler, one of those people who's like living in a legal settlement in the West Bank. At the time that he wrote this article, he was in the, um, the Knesset, the Israeli parliament, was not yet finance minister. But it's this long article that describes his genius solution. I mean, he comes so close to saying final solution to the whole Palestinian problem. Like he might as well By have said- By the way, say- just, just so you guys understand, his party, it's not even Likud, which is the right-wing party- He was a co-founder of a party that's just called Yamina, which means right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, there's no subtlety here. These people are so extreme. So extreme. So I'm bringing it up for a couple reasons. The big one being it's a really good insight into the way these people think. It was an important reminder because I know they're there and they're extremists. But uh, so many of the points he makes and the attitudes he brings to it and the beliefs that he takes for granted um, are really disturbing. I mean, his conclusion is very disturbing. His conclusion, like spoiler, is we should, we Israel should absolutely annex the West Bank and Gaza, which he calls Judea and Samaria. Oh God. um, Because he believes, as these people do, that there is you know, the state of Israel, and then there's the land of Israel. And the land of Israel is the historic and biblical land of Israel that was promised to and given to the Jewish people by God. And that fucking includes the West Bank. That's the river to the sea. So he wants to annex these territories. And his solution to the resistance that that would engender is that you, you just have to squash any Palestinian idea of hope, of getting their own state. That basically, if they no longer have any hope that they can get their own state, they'll give up. They'll stop. And his humanitarian way of doing this would be that anyone living in the occupied territories, uh, anyone who's Palestinian, would be given the opportunity to move anywhere they want to go at Israel's expense, we will pay to send them wherever. You should see the oh look of disgust on Maya's face right now. No, because it's also like historically, it's making me think of like the way that that racists in in pre Civil War and Reconstruction oh, yeah. South were talking about like removing black. Like it's yeah, so no, disgusting. Removal, it's it's a removal tale as old as time oh. here. Um, those who choose to stay would not get Israeli citizenship. 
of course, but they would get a kind of a, like a second class status where it would be a legal status. They'd be allowed to stay. They could vote on their own Palestinian authority leaders who would have essentially no power. They could not vote on who would be in the parliament. Okay. In the Knesset. Could we put a pin in that for, yeah, for yeah, more no, Netanyahu can, fuck up? Like, yeah, let's no, we just, can come yeah. back to that for sure. Um, like, it's a really horrible idea and, and doesn't actually address the question because he's like, anyone that would stay and try to be violent, well, we'd deal with them immediately. It's like, oh, really? How the fuck are you going to do that? You're going to do that by entering homes and roughing up Palestinians all over the place and doing all the same shit you're already doing. It was basically a call for incredible investment in building building towns and cities in the West Bank and trying to encourage people to move there, which is what they're already trying to do. This is what the right-wing government is already has been trying to do for years now, illegally. But the real reason I'm bringing it up is this insight into some of the underlying beliefs behind that. Obviously, racism is a major belief, but like to just call Huge. it racism as in like white supremacy is not quite it's not getting accurate. the picture. Yeah. The underlying belief that allows this kind of racism is that like Palestinian national identity is not a real thing. Before the state of Israel, there was no Palestinian state. There was no Palestinian country. There was no Palestinian national identity. They would not have called themselves Palestinians or even necessarily all considered themselves a group because there's different sort of ethnic groups and tribes within the area. Only after Israel became a state did they suddenly start to have their own aspirations to statehood. This is the myth that these people believe, to be clear. Yeah. I'm not saying that this is yeah. the truth. It's yeah. an important part of their rhetoric and ideology is discounting the idea that Palestinian national identity and even the desire for a state is authentic. They don't really want a state, he's, he claims. They only want to end Israel. And any claim that they would like a state, that they would like autonomy and self-determination is only a ploy. It's uh, a step along the way to destroying Israel, which is the only thing they ever wanted. Along with that goes the idea that this land, Israel, Galilee, was a barren and worthless wasteland. They love to cite Mark Twain on that. Apparently Mark oh, Twain God. visited and, and had a description that was like, oh, there's nothing here. Um, it was a barren and worthless wasteland until the Jews came. And this struck me because this, this is rhetoric that I used to hear growing up. I was kind oh, of yeah, raised yeah, yeah. on this stuff yeah. of like, oh, we turned the desert we into- We made the desert bloom. A, yeah, we made, we the, made desert the desert bloom. bloom. Exactly. That's it. Mm -hmm, we mm -hmm. made the desert bloom. Oh, and now they want the land. Now that we've done something good with it, but they were such bad stewards of the land is the implication. And- if you can discount the Palestinian ethnic and national identity, it's not just that you're discounting their right to their own state and autonomy and all of that stuff. It's also promoting the idea like, look, they're just Arabs. Arabs yeah. are Arabs. So like they can just go to all these other Arab countries because they're Arabs. They're all the same. And if we can believe they're all the same, then we don't have to worry about them as refugees or as their own people who've been displaced. Well, and the and the and the sick part of it, the really sick I mean, <laughs> there's no not sick part of it. It's all sick. Yeah. But part of that sickness is exhibited really concretely in the military response to the current situation. Cause yes. 
we have multiple things going on. We do have the fact that Hamas, yes, does indeed plant themselves in the places where their people are the most vulnerable. However, we also have Israel feeling like we're going to pound these people into dust because the people who are currently making these decisions are the people who have captured the right-wing government. Yeah. I mean, it, so, it reminds me very much of the invasion of Iraq Yes, and, and how years and years prior to that, like Paul Wolfowitz had written a paper about like, we need regime change in Iraq and here's how we're going to do it. So when the Bush administration was gearing up toward and asking Congress for permission to execute this plan uh, on the pretext of WMD or suspicion of WMD or whatever, so many of us were like, no, you no, stop. Stop pissing me off and doing. telling us it's raining. Like we know what you're doing. You have wanted to invade Iraq and institute your fucking fantasy plan of regime change for decades. You have wanted this for a long time. Correct. And that's like I can't help but suspect that a lot of that is what's happening here. 100%. You cannot convince me that they haven't wanted to flatten Gaza and reoccupy it and that that hasn't been a plan all along. Well, speaking of psychotic extremists with psychotic extremist plans, Mm. um, we talked about Hamas and the ways in which they knew they'd be triggering this response to their own people uh, because they don't really care about the safety and liberation of their people. And one of the questions that we've often seen is like, where did that aid money go? Where did that aid money go? And Russia Today, how did they get that footage? Uh, released footage of Hamas's tunnels. This is something you hear Israelis talk about a lot. This is how smuggling is happening through these tunnels, through these tunnels, through these tunnels. And you think, oh, tunnels that they're digging with a shovel. You know what I mean? Right. Like, you don't like think escape like, from Alcatraz kind yeah. of like. Yeah. <laughs> oh, shit. These tunnels are no fucking joke. Yeah. Billions, billions of dollars of aid money that were supposed to go into the building of Gaza to feed people, to educate people, went into some tunnels that are out of fucking Star Wars, man. These are crazy fucking tunnels. And so, I mean, I feel like if 1,400 people were killed in all these really grotesque and and really grand guignol kind of ways with heads being chopped off and breasts being chopped off and rapes and leg breaking and really crazy stuff, and then you found out that the people who did that have been running giant billion-dollar Iran-funded tunnels under the ground, you might expect a military reaction to that. I'm, again, in no way excusing how Israel's going about this, but I feel like it's complicated. It's complicated. Yeah. And I feel like when you see the infrastructure that Hamas has instituted, there will be a reaction to that. So just look at the tunnels and tell me how you'd feel if those tunnels were digging under your, and you might feel some things. Yeah. I I mean, that is an aspect of things that has been lost understandably, I think, because of the concern, the very real concern around the humanitarian situation, the massive, massive death toll. Disaster. And 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 the disaster, like it's a yeah. it's a humanitarian catastrophe. Catastrophe. It it is absolutely horrible. One thing I have learned recently is like, okay, it's not the bombing is not indiscriminate. It would not be accurate to describe 
Israel's bombing of Gaza is indiscriminate. And please let me be clear that I am not defending it. But it is not like a random, let's just kill as many people as we can. There is a method. There is a strategy. I'm not privy to whatever intelligence they supposedly have. And I'm not a military expert. But I do understand there to be a method to what they are doing. And it has a lot to do with destroying these tunnels. I absolutely cannot and will not believe that they couldn't do it in a way that wouldn't involve murdering so many civilians, so many children, cutting off electricity, cutting off water, all of these things, cutting off aid. But uh, there is this attempt to disable the tunnels. They claim that they already have disabled some percentage of the tunnels, like 30% or something like that. Uh, That said... Uh, I was reading an article in Haaretz that was saying there is no indication that there's been any meaningful impact on Hamas's top leadership. The people who are running the show, they are they are conducting, and to be clear, they are conducting operations from these tunnels. They come out from the tunnels to launch rockets. Well, they have a lot of food saved up in those tunnels. I mean, they're, yeah. they, they, they had a plan. Like, yeah. this is not without a plan. I just, I do think, I honestly think if... Any given American were in the same situation, their attitude would likely be very different. Their attitude about what's going on would be different. The, no, they, their, their attitude, attitude about what Israel is doing in yeah. Gaza might be quite yeah. different. Because, look, what happened on October 7th was like, you can't even compare it to 9-11. It was so much worse. Proportionally speaking, it was so much worse. And 9-11 happened because terrorists from halfway around the world came and managed to hijack planes. If the terrorists lived right next door, (laughs) were right there. I've been thinking about that a lot. Yeah. You're going to feel a certain way. That's all. You are going to feel a certain way. You're going to feel imperiled in a really certain way. That is going to make you want to use your might to undo the peril. But here's the part of it which brings those things together. Mm-hmm. The horrors of the racist, disgusting Israeli right wing that is not working towards any kind of real coexistence, and the horrors of insane Hamas tunnels where these leaders are living underground with enough foodstuffs for you know the next nuclear era. This is what brings these guys, and as we said in the last episode, these guys have so much in common. Mm. Um, what I have found the most disturbing is that Hamas was supported in a lot of ways by Netanyahu because Netanyahu would rather support Hamas than give concessions to the non-extremist two-state solution Palestinian authority. Right. That, That he thought he could really keep a handle on Hamas that he thought he could keep his hand on there rather than give an inch. And yeah. that and to me no, to is be like- clear, To be clear, you said in some ways supported. Yeah. Netanyahu was a major player in the founding of Hamas and the building up of Hamas over the years, since like the 1970s, if I'm not mistaken. And as recently as like 2017 or 2019, he was speaking to his party members- about the importance of propping up Hamas 
as a counterbalance to Fatah, who run the Palestinian Authority, because the most important thing, apparently, to these right-wingers is keeping any Palestinian political entity weak. Keeping yeah. them weak and unable to negotiate, yep. So that they don't, so that Israel doesn't have to capitulate to this two-state solution. So that Israel doesn't have to capitulate to anything. So they don't have to work together. Actually, work together. Exactly. And this is the part of it where I just keep wanting to be like, guys, guys, what is happening in our country? Look at this. This is this is so fucking important. Mm-hmm. Creating a situation whereby no one has to give anything. The danger that it puts us in is so fucking bad. Yes. Like, oh my God. I'm sorry. I can't be more articulate about it. It's just no, it's really very overwhelming real. because it's so horrifying. It's so horrifying. And I think this is something we're going to be returning to as we continue in this episode. But the way that Netanyahu and his ilk. I don't want to put it solely on him as one individual, though he is a horrible, strong man and all of that. I mean, he's a real agent for he's been yes, a he is a real agent. That. Yeah. yeah. But the way in which they have supported Hamas, it, it's just this really clear and obvious example of the ways that the people who claim to be able to claim to be the only ones who are able to protect you from a given threat are actively propping up that threat they are causing they are literally causing the threat that's absolutely right that only they can protect you from all right so these are the things that we've seen in terms of updates and more context politically yes so now we're going to shift to just ways that we're seeing the conversation going. Yeah, exactly. Last time we focused on three specific things we were seeing in the discourse that we found troubling. And um, I would say that the discourse has not gotten less troubling (laughs) as the weeks have gone on. It's uh, definitely gotten more so. What I'm seeing a lot of is this, uh, this absolutism, basically. This absolutism, this weird way in which uh, there is no room for nuance and there is no room for even beginning to acknowledge that the side other than yours has any leg to stand on or has ever done anything good ever. You see people like see this a lot. People who are protesting, you know, pro-Palestinian protests or just protesting what Israel is doing. They get called Hamas supporters and terrorist sympathizers and terrorist supporters, like as if that's fucking helpful in any way. But similarly, if you even suggest that like, you know, Israel um, does need to protect themselves from this, like maybe this is the way to do it. The threat they're feeling is not not real. Yeah, it's not (laughs) not real. It's not totally imagined. You get called a genocide supporter. Uh, You're accused of justifying or whitewashing genocide. Um, One of the things that's been getting to me (laughs) and um, I wanted to address (laughs) is the use of the term Zionist. I see this a lot. uh, People who are, I I don't want to even say pro-Palestine, people who are defending the Palestinians, people who are upset with Israel. (laughs) Yes. Hoping to stop Israel from killing more Palestinians. Um, They will tend to use the word Zionist. And I want to 
to just sort of talk about a, a little bit about the background of that term and what it means, because I think that people are using it in different ways. I think literally everyone who's using the word means a different thing when they say it. <laughs> there is no okay. consensus here. Okay. Zionism historically was the movement to establish the state of Israel. It, in fact, it was the movement to establish a Jewish homeland in Palestine, which became the movement to establish the state of Israel. So when you say that um, you hate Zionists, all Zionists are bad, or... Um, all you, that, Zionists are actually genocidal. They're, they're all genocidal. Did you know that? Um, yeah. If you say, I am anti-Zionist, I've seen a lot of people saying, not all Jews are Zionists, you can be Jewish and anti-Zionist, which I'm, of course is true, regardless of your definition. But when people say things like that, it sounds like what they are saying is that they don't think that... Israel as a country should exist. Yeah. Now, a lot of people do believe that, and I want to get into that in a second. But I am not sure that everyone who's using that term means it that way. I'm really not. I tried to um, ask people, literally on Twitter, I was asking random oh, people. Oh, how'd that go? Not great. I was asking random people that I saw, and look, it's Twitter. People were like, Zionists are monsters. So I was like responding to people like, can you explain what you mean by that term? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and like, I'm not challenging you. I'm genuinely, I see people using this term and I just want to know what you mean by it. Not a lot of people responded, uh, which I don't blame them for because they probably thought I was sea lioning. Yeah. Like trying to trap them into something. So yeah, that yeah, I could yeah. Tell them how wrong they were. But um, the responses that I did get were along the lines of, well... Zionism is a political ideology, so it's different from being Jewish. Jewish is a religion, but Zionism is a political ideology. Okay. Which I thought was a very telling response. To me, it sounded like, I'm not allowed to say Jews are monsters, <laughs> but I can say Zionists are monsters. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. there's a kind yeah. of like, I have to call someone monsters here. I yeah. have to say that these people are to their very core, bad and wrong. And I'm not, I got, ooh, if I say that about Israelis or Jews, I get a lot of blowback, but I can say it about Zionists. Well, but, but I think there is this thing where in order for the state of Israel to exist and for Zionism to come to its expression, it has always required the military industrial complex of the United States. Yes. And that is yeah i mean that's i can see how people find that problematic yeah but for a lot of these people i don't even think that's specifically what they're talking about right what so i was asking i would follow up what um what do you mean by political ideology what do they believe and um i got some very vague and like even self-contradictory responses where I really started to get the sense that these people don't know what they think a Zionist is. It's just the bad people. Right. And it's a problem. It's really a problem because, number one, when Iran or Hamas talk about the Zionist entity, they're not talking about a political ideology within Israel or something no. like that. They're talking about Israel existing. They're talking about Israel. They're not going to use the word Israel because to call it Israel would be to validate its existence as Israel. Yeah. So they call it the Zionist entity. Yeah. That's wow. That's where they're coming from on that, right? Right. 
So when American leftists or people sympathetic to the Palestinians use that term, to some extent they're echoing that whether they realize it or not. And the other reason that it can be a problem is that if, if they don't mean it in that way, if they're not trying to say that Israel absolutely shouldn't exist, Israeli people, American Jews, Jews around the world, people who think that Israel should exist, are going to hear you saying Israel should not exist. Right. And this is a problem because that is exactly what the problem is here. Right. Right. Israel is afraid that Hamas and Iran and Hezbollah and other entities, other nation states, other terrorist groups don't want it to exist. They want to wipe it off the map. That's been the fear since the beginning. Yes. Anything you say that is along the lines of Israel should not exist just justifies their feeling of like, that's right, we have to wipe these people out yes. because they want to wipe us out. Yes. It just leads into this cycle of fear and violence. Yes. So if indeed people don't mean by Zionist or Zionism, they don't mean the very existence of Israel, and I, I do really think a lot of them don't mean that. I think that what they mean is like what the current regime is doing, or they mean like uh, you know, settlers in the West Bank, the expansion of or or they mean or they mean this kind of propped up by the United States. Right. Maybe they mean militarism. They mean right. Israeli militarism as right. propped up by the United right. States. Those things are bad, but they're not calling it that. They're calling it Zionism. And I think it leads to confusion and anger and is unhelpful. Now, that said, I do want to talk about the people who think Israel shouldn't exist. All right. We, let's we elided oh, this in the last episode. We touched on it briefly near the end. My take on it was you don't have to talk about it. It's a non-starter. It's a non-starter. We're not talking about that. But apparently for a lot of people, it's not a non-starter. Yeah. I've seen more and more of it and realized the extent to which a lot of activists and leftists and um, people who want to promote Palestinian liberation really believe that Palestinian liberation cannot occur as long as the state of Israel exists. Yeah. And um, I disagree with that, first of all. I, I think that the Palestinian people can have self-determination, freedom, liberation, all of the rights and privileges entitled to them without the uh, state of Israel being dissolved or obliterated. But I think people who are talking that way haven't really thought through what that scenario looks like. Because the people of Israel, the 10 million people, or at least the like 8 million or so Jews of Israel, are not going to like accept that <laughs> it's yeah. not going to be like oh what you don't you don't think we should exist okay uh we'll just we'll just go that's not what's going to happen israel will fight for its own existence i know there are a lot of people who think that if u.s military aid to israel ended that somehow israel would just like dissolve like a deflated balloon or something but that's not what that would look like Israel would continue to want to exist and would fight for its own existence. 
I said this in the last episode, I touched on it, and I want to reiterate it a little bit, which is, um, I think when people imagine Israel, they're picturing like a military and maybe like, maybe they're thinking of like the West Bank where there are these settlements that are kind of like fucking shanty towns in a lot of cases. And, um, these, these Israeli settlers in those places and they really do horrible things and harass the local Palestinians and they fucking suck. Um, but it, on TV, it all looks very kind of shitty. It, it doesn't look like like a country. But Israel's a country with cities and towns that are just like the cities and towns where you live, American activists. Like, there are businesses, restaurants, bars, nightclubs. There are schools, universities, like houses, apartments. It's, they're cities. It's, a sta- it's an established country. And so the people are not going to just abandon it. They're not just going to all move away. So what you are talking about when you say Israel should stop existing, you are talking about ethnic cleansing. Come on. It's true. Okay. 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 But then I know you are, but what am I? Because no, no, no. Right now, I'm not no, saying. No, no, no. But that's, but that's the problem that we're in is this feeling of like, if you think Israel shouldn't exist, you're not thinking through what that actually means logistically. Right. And logistically, it looks like ethnic cleansing. And right now, logistically, you are seeing what Israel is doing as genocide and ethnic, ethnic cleansing and how they are attacking Gaza. And so we are we are at what's called an impasse, and it's a really <laughs> intense one right now. Yes. Um, and I feel like that's... That's kind of like, what is, what is it about this moment that is so crazy? Okay, listeners, full disclosure, we recorded most of this episode a couple weeks ago, but we are coming back to record more because there just keeps being more to say about this topic. Uh, so this is like a couple weeks after what you just heard. And where we left off was we were talking about the polarization here. We were talking about how this issue feels unresolvable sometimes, a lot of the time, especially lately. We want to dive into that now a little bit. Uh, why does it seem as though the two sides, as it were, and I hesitate to say two sides because I I don't think that Israel and Palestine are two sides. I think if there are two sides, the two sides are like Russia, Iran, and China versus America and its allies versus the West. And those two sides are willing to fight to the last drop of Israeli and or Palestinian blood. So I think... From the very start, as soon as we start positioning ourselves as like, I'm pro-Israel, I'm pro-Palestine, I'm anti-Israel, whatever, you're already off on the wrong foot. <laughs> you're already kind of missing the point. Oh, man. It seems like people are, are just hunkering down in their bunkers, which tends to make the other side feel like they have to hunker down. And it feels disastrous. I, I personally don't feel like there's anybody who I can talk to right now. It's like it's it's, I've talked to all of you, and I'm so grateful to be doing so. For real. But right now, the 
depth of the ways that people want to map their hurt onto the situation and the inability to acknowledge the the mutual disaster of this mm. uh is really I I don't it it's it's crazy it's hard right to wrap now. your head around, right? It really is. It really is. I think a big part of it is this need for things to be clear. <laughs> People don't like things that aren't clear. They don't like things where there isn't a good guys and a bad guys. They want there to be good guys and bad guys. They want to know they're on the right side. And one place that I see this, and I will share this, is with my mom, hmm. <laughs> my leftist Israeli mom, who hates Bibi Netanyahu, who, who hates the right wing, who hates those settlers. But then as we're seeing this fucking humanitarian disaster of the Gaza offensive is like, we have no choice. Mm-hmm. But Israel has no choice right now. And I'm like, ah, uh, <laughs> mm, do we have no, like, we have to destroy Hamas. And the only way through is this way. And it's terrible, but we have no choice. Right. And there is this feeling about that. Like, we have no choice that I was, uh, 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 I feel like there's got to be a better way. I feel like there has to be a better way. No, there um, has to be a better way. There has to be a better way. But Netanyahu and the right wing, the people in power, have a vested interest in making people believe that it is a binary situation. That Absolutely. either Israel is totally vulnerable or we have to murder thousands and thousands of Gazans, including fucking yeah. premature babies. Like yeah. somehow yeah. these are the two yeah. options and yeah. the idea that there could be a, some other option. I find it hard to believe that these are the two options. Although I do understand, I do understand why people have to tell themselves. Yes. Because it's a very difficult thing to live with otherwise. But I feel like that's part of what we're seeing right now is that in the heat of this, and I'm worried about the traces and the residue that it's going to leave, but in the heat of this, there is this total inability to acknowledge the pain, the very real pain of whatever the other side is, and the need for this moral absolute high ground, which this situation does not warrant, I'm sorry to say. Um, Jews and Israel think that Israel has no choice. Um, the sort of famous saying, like, if they put down their weapons, we'll have peace. And if we put down their weapons, we won't have a country. Like, this very, yes. that's a big, you know, koan, Israeli koan. Um, yeah. And I'm sad to say that Israel feels like a lot is riding on that because it's really about Israel's very right to be allowed to exist. And unfortunately, I'm really sorry to say the way that the American left is reacting is seeming to justify that perspective that for a fear. lot of Jews and Israelis because yeah. they're going, look at all these American leftists who are saying from the river to the sea and free Palestine, and they think Israel should not exist. And that is exactly why we need Israel to exist. And that's why we're going to double down on this position that we have no choice but to do what we're doing. I think that is spot on. And I think that's something maybe people don't appreciate 
is the extent to which Jewish Americans, supporters of Israel, Israelis, feel an existential threat, have felt an existential threat for 70 years. And that may not be justified as much as it was, you know, pre-67 or even into the 1980s, or I don't know when the cutoff point is, but I think there is at some point there's like an inflection at least where you could say, you know what, they've made peace with Egypt, they've made peace with Jordan, like it's not an existential threat. Right. And and I think it's just, it can be difficult to fully grasp that Israel is in this situation the greater military power. Israel has the upper hand in so many ways, and Israel isn't being existentially threatened. So it's hard not to see Israel as this complete aggressor. But from the point of view of people who support Israel, it doesn't feel that way. And it means that, like, in a country that was founded in living memory, right, Mm -hmm. by people who had been murdered by the millions in the Holocaust. And when they returned to Europe and the places they had lived before the Holocaust were also mass killed by the Poles or Germans or Austrians who didn't want to see them come back. Mm-hmm. They really, like my mom, who is, was born in that first generation of babies born in Israel, she keeps telling me this story about saying to her her mom saying to my grandmother when when my mom was 17, why do we have to fucking do this? Can't we just go and like just be Jews elsewhere? Like what it was in this lead up to the 67 war. And it's like, why do we have to be Israel? Why can't we yeah. just go elsewhere? And my grandmother said, we tried. They wouldn't let us. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I think Israel has not acknowledged or made a turn in saying we exist and we can take faith in this existence. And so we can think about our safety in a way that's less horrifying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like they're, they're not making that turn, but it, it puts them, they're so anchored down in that position. Yeah. And so they're not able to acknowledge the horrors of the ways that Israeli police um, harass uh, Palestinians jail them for stupid shit. The way that they are destroying Gaza right now, they are so stuck. They are so stuck. We have no choice. Yeah. We have no choice. I think that's well said. And for a lot of American Jews, I think especially, there's a feeling like Israel has to have the moral high ground. Mm-hmm. Israel are the good guys. We are the good guys. We're a democracy. We're a moral people. It's these people, these people with their terrorism, these people who will not acknowledge the existence of our country and keep talking about how they want to kill all Jews in order to maintain the belief that that is true, that that is what's happening here. You have to believe that Israel's in the right and that their actions are justified and moral. And so it's like really hard to get Israel supporters to even start to acknowledge that Israel's overreacting, that what they're doing in Gaza is not proportional, you know? It's not necessary or proportional. It has to be necessary and proportional because Israel can never be wrong and they can never be in the wrong. And it's not just like a tribalism. Part of it is tribalism. My people are the good people. But part of it is that there's a lot riding on it, like you said. 
if Israel's not in the right, and if Israel is not seen to have some kind of moral high ground, then the justification for Israel's existence starts to crumble. And that gets really scary to people. Yeah. At the same time. Oh, yeah. Israel's critics, <laughs> particularly like leftists, which we're going to get into, but Israel's critics seem to think Israel can never be right. And I have to say, I am really struggling with that because I think the horrors of Gaza are really, really, really beyond horrible. It's so extreme and terrible. But the way that the American left refuses to even say the word Hamas, I am having a really hard time. I, you know, I was so busy with my show. Um, I didn't start looking at what really happened on October 7th. And then I went down the rabbit hole because uh, a lot of women have been writing about like, why aren't the mass rapes of the October 7th attack being acknowledged by by the UN's Council on Women? Like, why mm -hmm. is this not being included in rape as a weapon of war as something that we're saying is horrible? And I've got to say, uh, don't don't read the things I read. Like, don't look it up. Just don't do it. Um, but it was so bad. It was so bad. Yeah. Oh you God. mean the attack? The, the, the attacks. Attack. The attacks, the, the mass rapes, the way that people were killed yeah. is so extremely. Just very, very deliberately brutal, cruel. To say it was designed to terrorize is to understate the situation. It was to make people feel powerless, helpless. And and it was immediately the Hamas were they were live sharing all of yeah. this yeah. these mass rapes and cutting people's heads off and cutting women's breasts off and like it's that bad. It's that bad. And it seems like there's no acknowledgement of it. Um Yaya Rosenberg had this great thread of of just documentation about how Hamas has been under the Shifa hospital for like over a decade, like no acknowledgement of how Hamas is playing this game with their own people as the cannon fodder. Uh -huh. And then, and then any news that comes out of Israel or anything the Israeli government says is all lying. No, I literally, my, I literally, this is part of why I wanted to come back and record more because I was looking at a thread on Twitter and, you know, you see all kinds of shit on Twitter, but this was like a long time, fairly prominent leftist person on Twitter. I don't mean like a prominent leftist in the world of activism, but just like someone who's been on Twitter and has a big following and is like not a paid Russian troll or a- That we know of. That if they are, they're like, it's a long con. You know, you're talking about someone who's been on Twitter for years and established a following and is just a leftist. Okay, maybe more extreme than would be a lot of people would be comfortable with, but they're like not outside the realm of what's just like youngish leftists, you know, people yeah. in their 20s or 30s. Yeah. Not a, not a 13-year-old, right? Not a 13-year-old and not a bot. There's a real person that other people respect. And they were literally saying that most of the Israelis killed on October 7th were military, that most of Hamas's targets were military targets, and that even among the civilians that were killed, 
a lot of them were killed by friendly fire or in the crossfire. They were saying this. And when people came back with, we saw the videos, we saw the live streams of this brutal carnage. This person was, he was insisting that you cannot trust anything that comes out from the Israeli government. The Israeli government just lies. They just lie. Like, look, I'm not saying there is no part of that that's valid. Like, I don't think you can trust everything that comes from the Israeli government. I don't think you can trust anything that comes from any government. I mean, they're always, it's called the fucking spin room, but it's not, but also it's not Pravda. Like, Israel has a right. fucking press. They Israel have a free, has a free press. press. If the government is going to lie so blatantly about something that hundreds or thousands of people participated in were were witness to, it's going to come out. And yes, this person was literally claiming that basically what Hamas did was not that bad and that it was propaganda. And boy, that like I was trying to get my head around what's going on there. Because my first thought is, is it is it anti-Semitism? I am not going to be one to jump to accusing people of that. But it's like, is there a point at which when you can't even acknowledge the brutalization of Jewish people, you have to deny that it even happened? Like, where does that come from? But then I had another thought. Yes. Which is, it doesn't have anything to do with Israel specifically or Jews. It has to do with the way American leftists believe that the United States is basically the source of all evil in the world. You saw this with Ukraine and support for Ukraine, uh, where even very prominent voices on the left were very critical of America's support for Ukraine because they see it as just this uh, manifestation of American imperialism. And the idea that also Russia is imperialist (laughs) and that that's also very bad and we can't just let that happen doesn't come into play because it's America that's bad and American foreign policy is bad. And now to be fair, to be fair, to be fair, they're largely right. (laughs) That's the thing. Like, to be fair, uh, we have a whole history Again, in our living memory of United States manipulation of various political situations all over the world. I mean, the Cold War, not a good look. CIA for some of the worst, worst dictators, worst dictators. Oh my God, regimes uh, just because they weren't Russia. Or because, or because they, yeah, because there's yeah. like this fear that any communism is going to, or any right. socialism. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. No, so, American foreign policy has been a nightmare for a lot of people around the world. And that yes. is absolutely true. Um, it becomes such an absolute truth, an absolute and universal truth, I think, for some leftists, that when they look at Israel, they see Israel only as an extension of U.S. imperialism. Right. And there's this way that they don't want to see how much of the situation was co-created. This is like in couples therapy. It's terrible. Uh, That, you know, how did we co-create this dynamic? 
Um, <laughs> how was this dynamic co-created by the dynamics of all of the countries in the region? Yeah, and and beyond the region. And beyond the region. They're willing to see where the U.S. and Western countries, the U.S. and its allies, had a hand in creating Israel's side of it. They are somehow not willing to see where other imperialist and colonizing powers have a hand in what's going on. All the evil always starts on the U.S. side. Then, in addition to that, I think there's also this phenomenon where American leftists, and I think this may be true generally with Western leftists, they try to map their ideas about liberation and social justice struggles onto the Palestinian struggle. They try to apply their ideas of how that works, what that means, to a situation where it only partially applies. I don't want to say it doesn't apply at all. But um, even if we take out the idea of nonviolent resistance and we say some violent resistance is justified, violent resistance against tyranny, the, the violence that we are seeing coming from Hamas, another terrorist group, does not fit those models of justified violence against tyranny that people are thinking of. Because as we talked about in our previous episode, Hamas are not operating on their own, just resisting tyranny in whatever way they can. They are funded by some very powerful geopolitical players who have an interest in creating instability there. And as you mentioned, their goal does not seem to be to actually liberate the Palestinian people in any way. The, so, so there is the need in protest to try and stop Israel from bombing the living shit out of Gaza and to let Aden. Yes. But then there's also this way that right now the protests of the American left feel like this is it. This is it for Israel and Gaza. Like we are protesting for Gaza and for the end of Israel's tyranny, for the end possibly of Israel's existence. And I don't know what they think is going to happen. When they say free Palestine, do they think that Palestine under Hamas is going to be a liberated democracy. Like, I feel like the same people saying free Palestine were very angry at the U.S. for not having done more about the Taliban's treatment of women in Afghanistan. Do you know what I mean? Like, No, I do. And there's this way that the acknowledgement, just the basic acknowledgement of the fundamentalist extremists and how they are a part of this dynamic is not there. And I think it's an important part of the dynamic. Yeah, I don't think it helps the Palestinian people or anyone to deny it. I And I do understand, look, I understand the passionate urgency. I really do. And yes. I, I want to applaud the people who are out there marching and blocking bridges and yes. trying to make their voices heard. And I appreciate the absoluteness of their message in terms of the message of ceasefire, ceasefire. Yes. Like this has to stop now. I get that. I agree with that 100%. The rhetoric that gets coupled along with that muddies that message. Yes. In a lot of cases. Yes. Uh, And it makes defenders of Israel, like you were saying a moment ago, 
get more defensive in their camp. What I'm talking about is like you mentioned from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, that, that chant. It's an interesting example. If you ask American activists who are chanting it, what they mean by it, or rather I should say, if you accuse them of being anti-Semitic for chanting it, because a lot of Jewish people feel like it's an anti-Semitic thing to chant. Yes. And the response you get from those chanting it is something along the lines of, if you think from the river to the sea means the end of Israel as a country, that's on you. If you think Palestine can't be free and Israel still exists at the same time, well, that's on you. You're the one who thinks those two things can't go together. They want this chant from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, to mean something unthreatening. Yes. And uplifting to the Palestinian people and hopeful. Do they? I but think do they, they do. I think they think that is what it means. I really believe this. And the reason Jewish people, not all Jewish people, I don't give a shit about the chant, but the reason a lot of Israel supporters find the chant problematic is because it is a chant that has been used by people who very clearly and directly have made no bones about the fact that they want to destroy the modern state of Israel and drive all the Jews into the sea. Like that is what they want to do from the river to the sea. Palestine will be free. That's what they mean by that. Yes. This I feel like is happening a lot lately. Similar to what I was talking about earlier with the term Zionism. And since we recorded a couple weeks ago, I've gotten more responses. I've been trying to poke okay. more people and get more responses. Yeah, yeah. But it's more of the same shit. Like the one of the answers I got was basically Zionism means you want to oppress the Palestinian people. This guy, I asked him, what do you mean by Zionism? What does that word mean? And he said, from the river to the sea, Google is free. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's cute. But people are using it different ways. Can you just explain how you mean it? And after he explained what he meant, I was like, yeah, that's not what it says on Google. That's definitely not what it fucking says on Google. But that is what this person believes it says on Google. He believes that if you look up the definition of Zionist, you're going to find person who wants to kill Palestinians. It's yet another example is my point that they're going around saying I am anti-Zionist. Zionists are the worst. Joe Biden is the worst Zionist of all. Yeah. And... They mean something that they have in their mind that could mean in favor of the existence of Israel or could mean something completely different. And they don't realize that for supporters of Israel, if you say you're anti-Zionist, you're saying, I don't want Israel to exist. If you say from the river to the sea, you're saying, I don't want Israel to exist. Um, Even the phrase free Palestine What does the phrase free Palestine mean or Palestinian liberation? What does that mean? It can mean a lot of things. It could look like a lot of things. Free Palestine could mean free the occupied territories from occupation. Yes. Right? It could mean a two-state solution. Yes. Free Palestine could mean a one-state solution where uh, it's no longer a Jewish state, but a place where Jews and Palestinian Arabs can both live and have full citizenship rights. Or maybe it means a Jewish state, but where Palestinians have citizenship rights. Or maybe it means no Israel at all. What I will say is that from the beginning of the history of Israel, the phrase free Palestine has frequently meant that last thing. Yeah. 
the one organization that I'm able to feel comfort following is called Standing Together, which is like these young Israelis and Palestinians who are basically starting from this very pragmatic look. We're both going to be living here, so we better figure out a way to fucking do that. And it's like, yeah, yeah. Where has that been? Where has that kind of pragmatism of coexistence been in the rhetoric? And it's nowhere. And the way that it's affecting how activists here talk about it is Mm -hmm. a disaster. Like the disaster of the inability to think about true coexistence. But again, it is a co-created dynamic. The idea of of the language of coexistence has not been on either side of this equation for a really long time. And it's only building and building and building. And I remember when not that long ago, like in the 90s, there were peace talks. Yeah. The idea of coexistence was a realistic seeming goal. Yes. It wasn't going to be easy. Yes. But like negotiations were happening. Yes. And what happened? Rabin got assassinated by his own extremist, by an extremist Israeli. By a Jewish extremist. Yes. And what we've seen in the intervening years has been what we've talked about, the increasing prominence of these fundamentalist extremist voices. And they have an interest in marginalizing any voices that want to talk about coexistence. Yes. It doesn't have to be kumbaya, we're going to like all be best friends. It just has to be coexistence. And those extremists, Netanyahu's allies, those people, his core voting bloc now, they do not want coexistence. No. And I'm sorry, but obviously Hamas and Hezbollah and Iran and various other groups whose names I don't even know who are operating in the region do not want coexistence or they don't want the idea of coexistence to take any kind of hold because they have so much more to gain from the belief that coexistence is impossible. Is not possible. That's it. And so I feel like for me, the moral of the story is that strong men never keep us safe. And that that is, that's it. The strong men never keep us safe and a security state and the violence of that is is not ultimately the solution for true coexistence. All right, listeners, you got to reach out to us. Thank you so much for your feedback on our last episode. Um, was this episode as good or did we just destroy all the goodwill? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let us know. As ever, the best way to reach us is to join our Patreon. You can find it at patreon.com slash sauce podcast. And all members of the Patreon get to join us on the Sauce Speakeasy, which is our Discord channel where we talk about whatever you want to talk about. And uh, you can email us at saucepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on most of the social medias is at saucepodcast. And you can find me at my grants any 
everywhere you're looking for Maya Garances. And you can find me as at Gynostar on all the various platforms. All right, listeners, we love you. Thank you. We'll be back with more fun stuff soon. Adios, amigas. Thank you.